0: Welcome to the Goat Life Podcast with me, Carl Beach, and my great mate Nathan Blackaby, The Fear Factor. I'm reading from, uh, to start with, Fear, an Ultimate Challenge by Ranulph Fiennes. If I were on the edge of a precipice and a large grasshopper sprang onto me, I should prefer to fling myself over the edge. Salvador Dali. Twelve years ago, In 2003, says Randolph Fines, I had a sudden heart attack on the EasyJet plane about to take off from Bristol Airport. Over the next three days in an NHS intensive care unit, 12 unsuccessful attempts were made to start my heart again. On the 13th attempt, it obliged. By then, a brilliant Italian surgeon. Had removed one 12 inch artery from my leg and another from my mammary system, not much use to men, to replace the two furred up arteries that had caused my collapse. Five years later, five years later, when I was crawling up a rope some 300 metres below the summit of Everest, (laughs) it's next level, isn't it? A massive angina attack reminded me that my body's engine was hovering around its sell by date. The original Bristol trauma occurred with no warning at all, and I can still remember nothing about it. Although it nearly killed me, I felt no fear. Whereas I'd known what, whereas, whereas had I known what was about to happen, I would, of course, have been extremely afraid. The Everest trauma was preceded by extreme pain in my chest and i was immediately aware that suspended from a rope on a near vertical ice wall at almost 29000 feet as 8800 meters above sea level at midnight i was about to have another heart attack the result was immediate panic I was more terrified at that moment than any other time in my life. And that's quite something, because this Mm. guy was in the SAS. Mm. He fought with the Sultan of Oman in the desert. I mean, he's a massive adventurer, you know. And as a result, failed to think and act sensibly. Initially, I quite forgot the uh, pills in my jacket pocket, which I carried for the specific treatment of just such an angina attack. By the time I remembered the pills, ripped off my oxygen mask and located the bottle, the wire stitches that had held my rib cage together since the previous transplant operation felt that they were being torn out of my chest. Over the years I have experienced both apprehension and panic and I learned early on that to achieve success in my chosen career of breaking polar travel world (laughs) (laughs) records. I need to prevent fear from causing pessimism and negativity, both of which are powerful ingredients of failure. I mean, that right. Like, that's a very interesting mm. statement. Mm. Fear, fear causing pessimism and negativity. Mm. How often do we see that? Mm. You know, people are a bit scared and they mm. quit on the shot. Yeah. And they get a cynical attitude coming yeah. in. Back to the book. Trained in the army to know your enemy, I studied all aspects of fear with meticulous care as though it were the topic of an examination from basic fight-or-flight responses to the multiple stresses and worries of modern life that are causing an ever-increasing number of anxiety related suicides worldwide. The mechanics of fear are still being studied in laboratories using rats, cockroaches, chimpanzees and medical students. (laughs) But the basics were revealed by the American physiologist Walter Cannon early in the 20th century, when he discovered that all mammals' digestive systems were disrupted by stress. All fear symptoms that he noted, including the tensing of muscles in readiness for action and raised heart rates and blood pressure, to pump blood with speed into limbs in readiness to flee. Fight or flight, that, isn't it? Yeah. Have you Have you ever known total fear? <laughs> like mind-numbing fear like that? Yeah, like totally, <laughs> massively in the panic.
1: Yeah, I think, I think I've think i been in a couple of occasions where I've felt that. I don't like flying. you not? No. No. And I remember there's a guy we know, local, who's got a, a little plane. Mm. And... Uh, he took, he took me up in it <clears throat> and as we're approaching the landing strip he's gone oh, oh no 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 this is this is the wrong bit I can't land here and he's made this quick alteration and the, the, the margin between flying and falling is very thin yeah
0: this and is I'm, as he was coming into yeah, land yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. a little Cessna yeah
1: he's floating it in yeah <laughs> and it suddenly <laughs> felt to me that we were falling rather than flying and uh, he managed to line it up and we did land safely. And actually, had another flying experience with the RAF boys.
0: Oh, you did aerobatics? Yeah, we did some
1: aerobatics. a l- experience of a lifetime. But there were moments there of gripping fear. Where I was in a plane with a guy called JP. And his plane propeller at the front yeah. was, I'd say, a, a metre at most from the under fuselage of the plane above us.
0: I don't think he's a very good pilot, is he? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's a superb pilot. Yeah, I know. He's but he's... then stacked above that plane was another one doing the same thing. So there were three of us, sort of bumper to bumper, as it were. And there were moments there where I actually couldn't look. I thought, this is... Wow. Well, yeah, it's, it's all going to be fear. over. Yeah, and I hate
0: heights, so it wasn't... Yeah.
1: Amazing experience. Thanks for that, But body. you,
0: But you did it. Yeah. The thing is, you did it. Yeah. And what we want to talk about is because uh, this this book I've just read the intro from is is extremely detailed yeah. and it's. I'm only going to do a couple of excerpts yeah. and then I really want to do a character study on one particular guy because well there's two characters I want to talk about because I think fear is realistic. Yeah. I mean, there's irrational fear. Yeah. And then there's rational fear which saves your bacon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some people seem to have. No fear, Gene. You know you've seen these YouTube videos of kids climbing up the top of towers without ropes and dangling off, and I mean, a lot of them die. Yeah, but they have no fear. But they've probably got fear about something else, like that Salvador Dali quote. Yeah. For me, it's like as a follower of Christ, how do we overcome our fears so that we can be all that God has sent us to be? So, back to the book. (laughs) This is a very interesting story. Nearly a century later, he says in this excerpt, page 59 of the book, if you're going to get it, I sat in the cab of an old AA Land Rover in Gondo Coro, drinking warm Coca-Cola, and listening to Charlie Westmoreland, as he recounted the little known story of the Scottish missionary Fred Arnott. You ever heard of Fred no, Arnott? No. Well, this is going to blow your mind. Go cool. on who faced up to two evil despots in the Congo's equivalent of Gondokoro and established Christian missions in the very heartland of Chief Mishidi, a self-styled Lord of Terror. So this guy, he's a missionary, a little known Scottish bloke, Fred Arnott, mm. goes out to uh, the Congo and proclaims the gospel in this area where they are reigning with utter terror and fear. Arnott left his job as a Tayside shipbuilder some eight years after Livingston's death. In 1881, he arrived in the Cape at the time my grandfather, Ronald fines was fighting the Boers and working for Cecil Rhodes. Though Arnott travelled on foot or by mule, over 23,000 miles in South and Central Africa. <laughs> wow. The land west of the Victoria Falls, then called Barotsi land, was Arnott's first missionary target, which he reached after facing death from illness and thirst in the Kalahari Desert. The Barotsi chief since 1878 was called Lerenica, and he ruled entirely through the medium of fear. Mm. Arnott, who was often sick with fever, was forced to watch the daily torture and execution lessons uh, sessions in Lurinica's royal court. An individual accused of witchcraft would have his hands dipped in boiling water, mm. and if the skin dropped away from his flesh, he would be burned at the stake. any judicial decision on tribal matters would be an excuse for an upfront sacrifice, usually of a child whose fingers and toes would be cut off and the blood collected for ritual sprinkling. The child's body would then be cut up and thrown into the river. What? What? Arnott forced himself to accept the innate cruelty of Lirinika and his warriors. Mm. And by 1884, he had made friends with the chief and established a missionary school. Wow. Now, that, I mean, just pause there. Yeah. This guy has travelled thousands and thousands of miles. He's faced death, sickness. He's away from home. Mm. He, he was a local Scottish bloke who who worked with his hands and then suddenly he's out there in Africa, literally in the midst of terror. Yeah. Now, me and you, I think if we were witnessing a child being cut up and killed, yeah. Yeah. we would we'd end up being dead because we would yeah. we would charge at it wouldn't we yeah. but this guy is thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna hold myself in the midst of this terror and I'm gonna dismantle this system by bringing the gospel of Christ so he endures utter terror and fear and he establishes his missionary school back to the book but when the civil war broke out amongst the Burotsi. Arnott moved on northwards to the land now known as Katanga, a province of Zare. The chief there, an infamous despot named Mshidi, ruled in Garangans in the town of Bunkia, at that time the most active remaining slave market on the continent. Mm -hmm. Ever the optimist, Arnott decided to set up a mission in Bunkia and on his way there in 1886, he discovered the true source of the Zambezi River, some distance from where Livingstone had located his source. For this, Arnott was later awarded the gold medal of the Royal Geographical Society. Continuing east towards Lake Muweru, he came to a recent camp of slave traders who had been there six days previously and had lashed many weak or lame slaves to trees. Some were still alive. Others have been mutilated by wild animals. This is like Mm. living in the worst horror film. Mm. Mm. Imagine the Daily
1: Terror. Mm. And and these tactics... I I was watching a documentary recently. El Chapo, drug lord in Mexico, Mm. he did something very similar. He would chain people to trees on the way up to one of his mansions to scare people, intimidate people. Yeah. It's
0: tactics. Tactics. On the outskirts of Bunkea, Arnott was greeted by Mashidi's warriors bearing freshly cut heads of slaves, mm. the blood from which was ceremoniously smeared all over his face and body. He was then led through the township of Bunkea, a collection of several thousand huts in the centre of which was the chief's palace. The citizenry consisted of numerous conquered tribes, living in sub-villages surrounded by stockades, all decorated with human skulls and macabre displays of freshly hacked limbs and human entrails. Mm. In between two stockades, they traversed an area of disturbed scrubland where the air was heavy with the sickly sweet smell of decaying flesh. Mm. One of the guards explained that the bodies of slaves and executed criminals were left there unburied to feed hyenas and vultures. You cannot conceive, Mm. I think, the sheer fear and terror that must have been engulfing this man. It would have been to the limit, wouldn't it? Yeah. The markets thronged with Arab slavers who had been forced inland by the anti-slavery laws of the East Coast and chained together in hellish clearings were thousands of slaves sweltering and moaning for water. Arnott noted that the pervading stench was of faeces, urine and body odour. He shuddered each time a new slave caravan arrived, and he watched babies torn from their mothers and dashed against trees to save food. This is his words. Half-castes worked in the slave pens allotted to new arrivals to yoke them together like cattle, with wooden hand or ankle cuffs w- linked with ropes. Children were neck-roped and, like the adults, bled from the wounds opened by whips of the guards. Next, they passed a small stockade, which, the guard explained, was Mashidi's doghouse, where he kept wild hunting dogs in a state of semi-hunger. This is hard enough to read, mm. let alone experience, mm. I think. Mm. Mashidi had several hundred wives in his home, but he rarely had sex with any of them. When caught being unfaithful, as many were, they were thrown to the dogs personally by Meshidi, who with his courtiers enjoyed the spectacle of them being ripped to pieces. As Arnott was about to learn, Meshidi was aware that in order to maintain his reign of terror, this is what you said, mm. he needed to keep his reputation for cruelty mm. forever fresh. Mm as do present-day Isis, also known as Is, Isil or Daesh, but referred to in this book as Isis, and all groups dependent upon the power of fear. One example of this witnessed by Arnup was a chief's personal supervision of the public execution of a senior court official for treason. He cut off the man's ears and made him eat them. Then he did likewise with his fingers, his toes, and finally his genitals. At last his head was cut off and his corpse was split down the middle. Soon after his arrival, Arnott was granted an audience with the great Mishidi who gave permission for Arnott to stay in his kingdom and set up a school. Arnott thanked the chief. He knew that to begin with he could do nothing but pray and be patient, but God's truths he determined must be established here in this hellhole, and Mashidi's barbarism mm-hmm. must be ended. Mm-hmm. And his eyes on the on seeing heaven, touch hell. Powerful, yeah. Isn't it? By the end of 1887, Arnott had become a confidant of Mashidi and he'd established in Bunkaya a church, mm-hmm. for his many converts, a clinic for the sick, and a school for the children. Be weakened by his ongoing bouts of fever, he was forced in early 1888 to leave Bunkeia and hand over his work to new missionaries, now sent out from Britain.
1: <laughs> so give us, what's the context to that again? Just to take us back to
0: the start of it. It was a missionary. He's a missionary from Scotland. Yep. Simple man. Yeah. Trekked out to the Congo and witnessed utter hell on earth and determined that only one thing could change it, yeah. the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he witnesses utter fear, terror, near death. And honestly, I mean, he must have had the favor of God in him to not have been killed and tortured and murdered himself. But enduring through all of that, yeah. and uh, we could probably, it's for a good two, three years he's yeah. out there. Well, Yes, yeah, a good couple of years is out there. 1884, he made friends with the chief. 1888, he left. That's right. four years of living in hell. Wow. He's hell. Wow. Uh, and facing near death, and eventually he he sees this work established. Hmm.
1: Um, That's incredible. Isn't it? Can you imagine the panic that you would have had in that situation? Oh. Like and and one life like that, you, you seeing one death, you would have been like, "I've got to try and rescue now." Like, there's something I need. I have to do it now. But he, he almost had the long-term game, longer yeah.
0: vision. Like, and my, I mean, the thing that fascinates me is how did he overcome his fear? Yeah. I mean, I would not be sleeping at night. No. There's a, a a picture in the book. Uh, Ranul finds. Fighting in Dofar. Yeah. And he, and he, there's a little caption under the picture where he says, I learned, at least in theory, that the secret of dealing with fear in Dofar was to keep a ruthlessly tight clamp on your imagination. Wow. That, which I—it's a very interesting line. Yeah. But I think, in the example of this missionary, mm. It's not. I mean, your imagination couldn't imagine much worse no. than what you're seeing. Yeah. So how on earth did he do that? Wow. That's the question. Yeah. How on earth do you get a grip on your fear and a tight clamp on your imagination so mm. that you can endure mm. utter terror? I mean, this book, which I do recommend people read, mm. It's not. A, it's not a Christian book. No, but it's a very interesting analysis of fear, and mm. not just from Randolph Fine's life, but people who faced the Holocaust and yeah. know, the missionary yeah, stories. Yeah. Very well balanced. Mm. I mean, there's some stuff in there that people won't agree with, mm. um, but the conclusion is, and I think he's very honest about it, is that he, everyone experiences fear, but it's the management of it. Yeah, yeah. Now I, you know, just in thinking about <laughs> applying this. Mm. Um, Before we look at another character, uh, I think a lot of Christian men, I think a lot of Christian men quit on the shop through fear of failure, previous disappointments, um, insecurity. I mean, there's so much resource out there. There's this vast, untapped army of men who follow Christ. Yeah. But there's also a lot of disappointment and fear. Mm. Fear of rejection is a big Yeah, oh yeah. And and currently there's also a big fear I think, just deviating slightly quickly. I think there's a big fear of men being men. Mm. Like if you you know, if you're too masculine Mm. you get get a lot of pressure, don't you? Mm. Yeah, you do. So there's fear holding Mm. men back in all kinds of ways. Now, we know there's a broad spectrum of masculinity. Yeah, of course. Uh some guys are very tender, gentle. Yep. Some guys are the blokey football the guys. The alpha but, bloke, yeah. yeah. But the uh, the kind of muscular stuff is being so demonised now. Mm. Blokes who that's their natural thing mm. are, being, are being diminished, mm. I think, mm-hmm. particularly in the church, Yeah, which is a very controversial thing to say. Mm-hmm. And we're probably going to get punched mm-hmm. in the face for but it.
1: But that's okay. Because <clears throat> the other thing, I, I think there's the, f- the fear of man and woman. That when you stick your head up and have a comment or, or a criticism or a view, yeah you get shot down, and I think a lot of guys won't speak or won't speak out because of fear of others of of yeah ridicule or yeah and I think particularly when we talk about evangelism later on and and uh, the courage to to talk about your faith yeah that can be a huge stumbling block for for guys because they <clears throat> they don't want to get it wrong they don't feel like they got the answers yeah if i'm trying to tell you about jesus and you're like well mate let me tell you about science and the dinosaurs and and i can't debate it there's a huge fear there that yeah i'm getting it wrong and
0: you've got to cross the fear barrier haven't yeah, you yeah
1: i think so barriers of rejection and yeah do you think though that happens over time? Do you think there's like a thickening of uh, your skin? Because I would say that you, both you and I, for different reasons and through different experiences, have got to a point where you can you can tell me to my face if you don't like me. It's no
0: problem. I'm not afraid yeah. to to say what I think. Yeah.
1: In in the public, form. I think the
0: secret is thick skin, soft mm. heart. Mm. So, I mean, I it's fair to say that we do get a bit of flak chucked our way yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's been twice in national magazine articles. I've been absolutely slammed. Yeah, uh, in letters pages mm. or on social media. Mm. I remember one time someone I wrote this article. I did, I got interviewed mm. for Christianity magazine some years ago, mm. and um, <laughs> there's a context behind it, but I'm. Um, Someone wrote in, the, the, the interview was in two halves. So yeah. I was mucking about in the first interview, yeah. and just bantering. And then the second half, yeah. I'd said some very serious and thought through things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't realise they were going to split it into two halves. Right. I thought it was my interview. <laughs> 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 they published the first one on its own. Oh. Right. Yeah. So I was in a hotel room in Leeds, and uh, a mate, a CVM supporter, phoned up and he went, "You've seen a letters page in Christianity magazine. I went, mm. and, uh, he said, mate, you're going to love it he said it's uh, it's awesome hmm. I said you're saying it's it's not very good he went yeah he said they hate you <laughs> <laughs> he said so I'll read out the best one and I went by best you mean really bad he went yeah <laughs> and he said Cole Beach is ignorant sexist <clears throat> and lives his life under a flower pot okay so anyway the next day I went from I don't know what that meant No, it might have been edited do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the next day I went from Leeds to Liverpool and I went into a working men's club for a meeting to plan a Liverpool outreach. Yeah. This was years ago. Yeah. And as I walked in, they went, Here he is, flobber dobber dobber dobber, <laughs> the flower pot. Man. And, but I remember feeling like I never want to stick my head above the parapet again. Yeah. And then the next article came out the following month and you know, I got some nice things said, but of course the damage was done. Yeah. You know, and then I remember I wrote an article for Children's Work magazine. Mm. I said, you know, something. I mean, I think it was more nuanced than people said. I said something like, you know, if you take away toy guns from kids, they'll pick up a stick in the woods and they'll make a sword. Yep. I mean, I've seen it. You know, they were stuck. I've heard mums say it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard yeah. Mums so say I that about said their this in our school. I went, mean, like, boys will be boys. Yeah. That, that was the bad, that was the phase yeah, yeah, that yeah, got me. Yeah, yeah. And literally got massively. Yeah. Assaulted Mm. over it verbally and on social media but by that time you see my skin had thickened but my heart was soft yeah but the first time I was like I never want to do this again yeah second time I'm like yeah yeah I mean maybe it was a sensitive turn of phrase you know I mean I didn't mean it I mean I got Mm. accused of inciting all kinds of violence Mm. against women and Mm. And i'm an ambassador for restored yeah, you know so yeah, it's yeah. quite sort of embarrassing at the time but uh, the but that second time i was up for it
1: It's interesting it? Uh,
0: I'd, because i because i've been i'd chosen to cross the pain barrier yeah because this is what i've learned and you mm. know this mm. anything new and fresh or anyone who's pioneering yep. anything or yep. anyone who casts a strong opinion uh you are going to get shot at yeah and so a lot of people don't do stuff mm with fear of the consequences. Mm. Or they just want a quiet life. Yeah. But I don't want a quiet life. No. Because I want to see men rescued. Yeah. And lives transformed. So yeah. you can't you can't lead a quiet life. No. And I know that years later I look back and think, Oh, I don't agree with that thought I had then. Yeah. That's fine. Because you're on a journey. But yeah. it's crossing the pain barrier. Yeah. And that's what this guy did.
1: Yeah. In the book.
0: Crossed the pain barrier. So mm. his wasn't criticism, his was murder, yeah. death. Torture, right in his face. Right in his face. Unbelievable. Yeah. Should we have a look at another little story with a guy? Yeah. So this is the story of uh, Albert Ball, who is a fascinating uh, character, who is a World War I pilot, and this comes in a book called Supreme Courage, Heroic Stories from 150 Years of the Victoria Cross, mm. written by uh, General Sir Peter de la Billière. Okay. Sat in the back of my dad's cab once. Did he? he did you? Yeah. Wow! There you go. In, in hand full the man military who shook the hand. regalia.
1: Hmm? In full military regalia, like coming
0: know? out of a coming out of a do. Yeah, <coughs> that's pretty cool. Black tie do. Oh, right. My dad recognised him. He said, "You general, put you to Billy." I am. Don't think he tipped him. <laughs> As an example of sustained courage displayed over many months in the face of acute danger, the record of Captain Albert Ball Royal Flying Corps will surely never be surpassed. By the time he was killed at the age of only 20, Mm. on the 7th of May 1917, he had destroyed or forced down nearly 70 German aircraft, often taking on four or six opponents at a time yet mere figures give no idea of the superhuman determination with which he fought for Britain. In character and behaviour he was anything but flamboyant. yet in the dark days of 1916 and 1917 he fired the whole of the world flying corps with new hope. Ball was a quiet, simple little man, wrote his fellow pilot Cecil Lewis. He never boasted or criticised, but example was tremendous. Another colleague, Roderick Hill, reckoned he was evidently the offspring of a vixen and a lion and that he did the work of a whole squadron by himself. He had no bloodlust and hated sending hostile pilots to their death, but a sense of duty beyond the normal made him take to the skies again and again and again, ferociously determined to shoot down his country's enemies. Mm. This guy is absolutely fascinating. Mm. Uh and it, and basically, this one chapter tells of his gradual descent uh, into dealing with utter terror and fear every yeah. day. Bearing in mind, these aircraft were not sophisticated. No, no. Let me read this about what it looked like to fly in one of these aircraft when he was flying in France. The first aircraft he flew over the continent was a slow and heavy B-2 biplane. At that date, the main workhorse of the Royal Flying Corps, which had a cruising speed of 70 miles an hour and took nearly an hour to reach its service ceiling of 10,000 feet. Wow. <laughs> By the middle of 1916, there were 185 BE-2s scattered around the RFC's fields in France. Nearly half of the total of British aircraft deployed. Two-seaters, they carried an observer in the front of the pilot and were being used mainly for bombing, artillery observation and intelligence gathering. The pilots would fly out over the front lines to bomb or spot enemy positions, and although they could not receive messages on their primitive radios, they could sometimes transmit to the ground. More often they had to resort to physical signals, flares, lamps, smoke grenades, and sometimes if they needed to impart information, their only option was to land. The b 2s Having given makeshift armament in the form of a 303 Lewis machine gun mounted in front of the observer, which fired detachable canisters of ammunition known as drums, but they were not fighters and no match for the slender, speedy Fokker E1, a monoplane capable of 110 miles an hour, which the Germans had just brought into service. This was the aircraft on either side armed with a machine gun synchronised to fire through the propeller arc and for a few months it seized the air initiative. This just gives you the context. Yeah. Nevertheless, Ball continued to fly aggressively whenever he got the chance. Tactics were rudimentary. BE-2s took off in small formations on reconnaissance or bombing sorties. They were in effect fighters but in 1916 there was no expression of, of fighter pilot. There were single seater uh, specialists were known as scout pilots. Much of each mission would be spent cruising in search of chance targets, but Ball developed a habit of going down low to shoot up German trenches on his way back to base. Even without plane to plane combat his life was dangerous. On 20th of March his engine failed on takeoff; the aircraft ploughed into the ground nose first and he and his observer were trapped in the wreckage from which they emerged unhurt. On the 27th of March his engine was smashed by anti-aircraft fire and he had to nurse the aircraft down onto rough ground. During the First World War, British fighter pilots had no parachutes. The only Allied personnel equipped with the means of escape were aerial observers who went aloft in balloons. The Germans did introduce parachutes when mounting losses reduced their pilots to critical level. He said this after a particularly tense moment. I like this job. I like this job, but nerves do not last long. And you soon want to rest. His terse letters home did not conceal the fact that he was in mortal danger every day he flew, and his parents were naturally in a state of constant apprehension. When his father wrote to him early in June, early in June, expressing some of their fears, he replied, "Are you saying if anything happens to me? If anything did happen, as it quite easily may, I expect you and wish you to take it well." For men, tons better than I, go in hundreds every day. However, I will be careful as you wish, but I do like my job. And this is a great help. <coughs> this guy's is he's 19 years old at this point. Yeah, he's, he's going into battle every single day. Moving on a little bit. His letters home became stilted. And it's difficult to determine how distressed he was by the constant loss of friends and colleagues. Perhaps he stuck to his wooden language as a a means of keeping his emotion under control. I'm having a very poo-poo time, he wrote (laughs) home on the 10th of July. (laughs) On the sixth, three topping chaps went off and never returned. Yesterday, four of my best pals went off, and today one of our new chaps has gone over. To his father, he wrote on the same day, You asked me to let the devils have it when I fight. Yes, I always let them have it. But I can't really think of them as devils. I only scrap because it's my duty. Mm. But I do not think anything bad about the Hun. He is just a good chap with very little guts trying to do his best. Nothing makes me feel more rotten than to see them go down. But you see, it's either them or me. So I must do my best to make it a case of them. Mm. You cannot conceive, can you? what it would be like to be flying in those flimsy little aircraft no. going up day after day after no. day. Can you imagine that?
1: No. No, it's brutal, isn't it? And
0: and the loss of
1: friendship around you all the time.
0: Yeah. There's yeah. almost...
1: I mean, we, we, we look at this military stuff, don't we, a bit, because it, it really
0: resonates
1: something of the yeah the value of humanity, the cost. and
0: Yeah. It, it, it really is. And, and he... He basically sinks into this extreme position of stress yeah. where he, he isolates himself, the book goes on to say, from other pilots, and he had his own little hut at the hmm. end of the airfield he used to hang out in and listen to classical music. Yeah. And his letters uh, home uh, just basically started to change, and he got more and more stilted. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think more and more under stress one of his uh, one of his last letters said this. Don't work too hard, Dad. For it will be so rotten when I come home if you cannot share my happiness. Please give my mother a huge cheerio for me and tell her I'm doing my best for her. Do send me a few plants for my garden. This was where he had his own little hut. Mm. One of the Huns tried to ram me after he was hit and only missed my inches. I am indeed looked after by God, but oh, I get tired of always living to kill and I'm really beginning to feel like a murderer so I shall be so pleased when I've finished. Wow. The last letter Ball wrote was to uh, this per... Lol. Received your topping letter and cake. It's so good of you to think of me so much. Today we drew lots for leave and I came out last. But it was a sporting chance. I made my 42nd hun yesterday. That's kill. So I am now four in front of the French. Was shot down yesterday. So I'm getting a new machine today. Must go now. Tons of love. Albert. Wow. His last letter home. Now the question is, he's nineteen, twenty years old. Mm. He's clearly got some kind of faith mm. that comes across. Mm. But how does he go up day after day after day? Loves flying, hates killing. Mm. Shot down, crashing, men dying around him all the time I mean I don't know what the average life expectancy for World One Pilot was but I think it was about two weeks Mm. something like that how do you go up again and again and again Mm. and why do we quit so easily what did they have that we haven't got in Mm. our culture Mm. so I think
1: and we touched on this (coughs) in one of the other podcasts about the code. I think when we're we've drawn from a battle front and a battle line yeah. and we're we're asleep on sofas, flicking endless tele channels, and we 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 don't sense that urgency. We don't sense that fight or no. heat. So we kind of go through a process of I don't know. On a bit of a treadmill of well, I go to work, I come home, I you know do what I need to do at home, whatever that might be, whatever my family life situation is. If it's kids, if it's you know wife, or if if a guy's single or what, and you've got a church commitment, and that might be an evening thing, and and then there's a commitment on a Sunday to go to church. Uh, There's try and fit in some hobby or health. Activity during the week. Yeah. Maybe socialise, maybe have a night out with our, our partners. Or, and that's kind of the pattern. That's kind of the cycle. So I think quitting out on stuff through fear is almost a... I, I wonder if we don't dream about the battle, we don't imagine the heat of the battle, we don't feel a call to do anything else because he mentioned
0: a couple of times yeah one little word duty duty i must do my duty now i wonder if i mean we don't want to be duty bound we respond to god's grace and his love but there is something isn't there around doing your bit yeah for god's kingdom yeah and overcoming your fears. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the verse in Scripture uh, that I think is very pertinent to this subject is Matthew ten twenty eight. Okay. Do not fear, fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Mm. I.e., there's only one thing we should be afraid of, mm. it's the living God. Yeah. We don't talk about the fear of God. No
1: no it's a bit uncomfortable isn't
0: it yeah but what he's saying is don't worry about you know I mean we'll talk about phobias another yeah, time yeah. phobias fears worrying about what men think of you worrying about your reputation mm. actually do doesn't really matter does it no do your duty for the kingdom mm. you know if God's given you a vision or an idea mm. do it mm. you know be prepared to take the hit yeah carry the can and yeah do your bit
1: and and I do I do think that quote you said at the start where fear can drive us to was it pessimism or
0: yeah, it's <coughs> a very interesting mm. quote I thought. Mm. pessimism we, and cynicism yeah and
1: that is sometimes the default reaction to fear. even other blokes who, who might dream about stuff or come up with ideas or creativity and through fear we shoot it down don't we
0: yeah
1: Whether it's words of that that will never happen. There's no way that, you know.
0: My brain's just tripped into one thing, which is I think a lot of leaders don't release people through fear. They're going to get a better following. Hmm. It's going to disturb what I'm doing. Hmm. You see a lot of that, a lot of insecurity. Keep holding people back. Yeah, you do. Yeah, It's fear, isn't it? Yeah toxic actually Mm.
1: so how do we overcome it because part part of us doing this is we want it to be informative don't we but we also want a practical like what we found works or
0: from from a Christian lens a Christian filter well there's something about these two stories where they were both prepared to get up again and again and again hmm. and, and and push down their fear. Hmm. Are not the missionary ball taking off hmm. day after day after day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stories that have been replayed many times I'm sure but these are the two <laughs> we're yeah, looking yeah. at today. Yeah. Um, for both of them for Arnott, it was, it was, he had his eyes on the heavenly prize of yeah. establishing the gospel. He thought it's the only way I can change this. Yeah. It's a tough hour for the gospel. Now, we, we've said in a couple of the other podcasts we did mm. that the defining difference is when you've got a heavenly perspective about your life. Yeah. So clearly, Arnott had that. Yeah. Ball had a sense of duty. Yeah. And he wanted to serve his country. I think if we can somehow fuse those two things, or serving your country, but serving Jesus, give it everything you've got for mm, Jesus. I'll mm, give it my all mm, for Jesus. Because mm, he loves me. Mm. And because he died for me. And I've got and I know one day in my life in a lot of eternity this this is gonna be like waking up for a dream. Yeah. So I've got heaven on my shoulders. Yeah. To confuse those two things I think it gets you out of bed in the morning and yeah. makes you take some stuff on. Yeah. So it makes me overcome my fear, mm. uh, like when we're doing something big scale, launching some new thing like the gathering, or yeah. you know, I'm going to stand in the field and preach the gospel. When I'm mm. naturally shy, that that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, vision, mate, vision, and and God's love mm. are the two things that drive me. Mm. Like the vision to see a million men come to faith. Mm. That 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 propels me forward, even when I'm lying there at night worrying a little bit. Or the money's not coming in, or is this thing gonna yeah. event gonna blow up? Yeah. Or, or I'm worried about my reputation mm. because people are having a go at me because I said some stuff about blokes. Mm. It keeps me going. His vision, yeah, yeah, and and Jesus loves me. Mm. It's not just that I love Jesus, but He loves me. Yeah, yeah. So that and so, and sometimes it keeps me going.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes I found that you need guys around you who can call that out in you. Yeah. And and almost call out the hero in those
0: moments and say, "No, I see this in you. Like, go for it." The other thing that I found is is to not allow fear to creep in. Mm. You know that Fines quote where he said, "Keep a clamp on your imagination." Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed when my kids started to get a bit fearful, like about a dog or yeah, I'd hold their hand and I'll say, "We'll overcome this together."
1: Yeah.
0: I wouldn't let it creep in. No. You see, a lot of parents are give in to their kids' fears. They fears all their lives, yeah, yeah. or often phobias develop into yeah, other yeah. things. I've applied this to myself, mm. and I've applied it to my kids, who are generally quite fearless now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is I don't I don't let it get a grip on my imagination. Yeah, yeah. I, I deal with it. Create a different story for it.
1: Or, Almost like, getting massively
0: slated on some yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote another one. Yeah. Then delete my social media accounts. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let this yeah. do me in. Yeah, or well, you know, you, you do a talk. I mean, in in my game, a lot of public speaking, which yeah. is actually one of the most terrifying things. Yeah, you can do, which Fines talks about in his book. Actually, I've had bad moments <clears throat> when my talks have gone very, very badly wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. And the tendency is to think I never want to do that again. Mm. But if you do that, you will never do it again. Oh, yeah. What you got to do is is say i dust myself off yeah it's all right and we sometimes we have another go yeah i have a little giggle on the yeah, way yeah. if it's gone badly wrong sometimes coming getting over the fear as
1: well is in the preparation and yeah. the planning and the organization of something that mm. you you want to go for I, I remember speaking and i had 10 pages of talk like typed out that i was going to read and i knocked <laughs> it off the lectern and it all fell on the floor got disorganized and in the heat of the moment, I couldn't get it back in the right order.
0: Yeah.
1: And that filled me with this fear of like I've got I've now got nothing to say because I was just going to read it, and then from that it was like I'm never speaking again. I can't do it.
0: But then All there right. was a actually <laughs> bit of time, bit of preparation. <laughs> yeah, bit of prayer, and yeah. uh, go again. But so often you read accounts of battle, and people say the training kicks in. Yeah. Yeah. And they worry about it after, you know. Yeah. We
1: do we do call out that sort of resurrection DNA don't we in, in CVM that even even if you go once and it's wrong yeah you, you get over that fear by getting up and going again
0: yeah yeah i mean i've failed many many times yeah you know i've got things wrong i've taken on stuff i shouldn't have done yeah i've blown up on the stage <laughs> yeah like, yeah you know uh that's, that's life yeah, yeah. but a lot of people give in at that they point give in. don't give in it's all training it's all yeah. thing, uh, skin thickening yeah. don't give in to your fears but you I know, do think I do think this guy this Arnold guy had yeah. his eyes on the heaven see that's pies, that's, you know, that's the
1: bit that, I like because you would want to mend the instant problem wouldn't you yeah. stop killing that kid or let's yeah, jump in run and run it, rescue someone stop
0: yeah. cutting that kid up yeah yeah like but charge he's, in he's he like bigger, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna watch it Yeah, I'm going to dismantle it, dismantle the system over years with the gospel. That is (laughs) courageous, yeah,
1: yeah. But hey, in communities, in societies, I mean, you've worked and journeyed and been part of the poorest of communities in the UK, and I've, me too, in Brazil, and stuff like that. And it is this bigger picture that you can see the gospel transforming whole communities.
0: That's it, and it does, but it takes a long game, yeah. You no, know, we uh, we lived in an area planting a church for many years, which was scary. You hmm. know, I got threatened by a drug dealer with a knife. Hmm. We had all kinds of stuff coming through our house, hmm. punch ups and people booting up heroin and yeah. uh, in front of us and uh, everything. We had a brothel down the road, but do you know what we persisted. Hmm. And in the end in our church we had uh, we had you know the brothel made come to Christ. Yeah. And then people coming to Christ who were visiting a brothel previously, wow. all meeting up in our church. We dismantled the system. Yeah, yeah. And we brought God's kingdom in. But mate, the years we were there frightening at the times. Yeah. Scary, yeah, false accusations, no money. But I mean it's nothing like this guy face, which mm. is hell on earth. Mm. But you you have to have a vision. Yeah. Keeps me going. Yeah, yeah. Overcoming fear. Yeah.
1: I was reading Isaiah 43. Uh, But now this is what the Lord says. He who has created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. Hmm. And it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's awesome, isn't it? It's like. Still going to go through you're gonna it. You're going to go through it. It's going to happen. He's
0: got you. He's, you're in his grip. He's got you. Can overcome fear. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Back with you next week.